From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. I can vividly remember the first time I stepped into the aspen forest that has come to be known as Pando, which has an interconnected root system and is one of the world's largest and potentially oldest known organisms, but which also at that time appeared to be dying, likely because of overgrazing by deer and cattle. I was spending a few days with the ecologist Paul Rogers, who was making a trip to central Utah for the first time since a large area of the woods had been fenced. And Rogers was delighted by what he saw. There were small stems shooting up here and there and everywhere within the fenced area, evidence that if we could just prevent overgrazing, this remarkable one-tree forest might just have a chance. It's been about a decade. And whenever I return to Pando, I take a walk in that same fenced area. And I'm delighted, much in the same way that Rogers was, to see the sorts of things that he taught me to see on that first visit. But outside of the fence, there's another story being told. And in a recent study published in the journal Conservation Science and Practice, Rogers describes a situation in which the human interventions aimed at saving Pando have essentially created three different growth behaviors. In the 16% of the woods that have been fenced, Pando is thriving with a variety of sprouting, youthful, and more mature stems with annual waves of growth that makes for a generationally diverse forest. There's another area, about 34%, that was fenced a while back, but which fell into disrepair for some time before being rebuilt. In that area, there are a few distinct generations of growth, but not enough diversity to be considered healthy. And then there's the half of Pando that has never been fenced. And it's not doing well. For the most part, only the very old stems remain, and there's very little intermediate or new growth. And you might think, well, the answer is easy. Just fence the rest of it. But as it turns out, it's not quite that simple. Paul Rogers, it is always a pleasure to chat with you. So happy to be here, Matthew. I love to be on your show, and I love having these really engaging discussions with you. You know, when I used to talk and write about Pando, people were often very surprised to learn about this superlative organism. And now it seems like so many people have at least heard of it, but it still doesn't get a ton of visitors. So a lot of people haven't seen this thing firsthand. So could I ask you to try to describe what it's like to walk into this one tree forest, not just like what it is and what it looks like, but like, what does it feel like for you? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Uh, To the uninitiated, if you weren't aware of where you were, and if you weren't aware of a little bit of background about Pando, you may feel like you're just walking into any forest. In this case, a, a pretty large forest of more or less uniform, uh, Uh, mature aspen trunks. However, the more you know, the more humbling this experience is, as I think you alluded to in the outset. But beyond humbling, it makes us think about sort of our role in the world. At least I get that feeling. And so in the middle of this giant aspen grove, leaves all a Twitter, not because I'm there, but because uh, they would do that whether I'm there or not, but that's a meditative sound. And I'm in the middle of that giant grove, feeling my smallness, feeling the immenseness and perhaps even the age of this creature. 
but then having those other thoughts about how did we get to this place? How did we as humans, through our various practices, most of them well-intentioned, get to a place where we're causing the collapse of this sort of world-renowned forest of one tree, as you suggest? And, and it sounds like a little, a tinge of sadness as well. Yeah, a sadness. I'm generally an optimistic person, and I think we can get ourselves on the right track. But you describe sort of these three forests that are now clearly kind of um, coming out of this single, uh, maybe most uniform forest of its size in the world. And now it's kind of separating it into at least three pieces, not unlike the breakup of the ancient continent Pangaea. But this is human caused. You know, it's clearly our decisions, how we regulate livestock, how we regulate deer, how we treat forests, even how we um, interact uh, as recreationists or even admirers. You know, uh, we need to tread lightly as we go forward. We need to think about the advantages of what fences get us and what they don't get us. Well, how... Let's let's well yeah because I want to get to fences in a in a few minutes here but I just want to like put this in perspective in your own life you you mentioned this thing is quite old I think there's there's some debate and and a lot of uncertainty even more than the debate about how old it is but in any case it's it's been around a lot longer than you and I have um but I, like just in perspective how long has it been since your first trip to Pando? Yeah, it's been about 20 years. And um, and I've seen some improvements. And those are those are somewhat due to these, what I call bandages on the landscape that's putting up this fencing. Why does the fence work? Because it doesn't, you know, if you just think, well, they put a fence around a tree, <laughs> that, there's, there's some other things that that fence is keeping out. Yeah, right. Bear in mind, when we say a tree, we ki- we're kind of toying with language here. We're toying with what's an individual and what's a community and what's a tree and what's a forest. And it gets all kind of uh, knotted up in this um, intricate root system that's uh, connected underground. And there's an estimated 47,000 mature trees that make up, uh, if you will, the single tree of Pando. So it looks like a forest, but sometimes we're referring to it as a single tree because they're genetically identical. So uh, fast forward until, you know, 50, 60 years ago, something clearly went off pace to where the old trees were beginning to age and die um, and the young trees were were not coming about. Where are they? Uh, this tree reproduces by sending up what's called root suckers or small juvenile trees directly from the roots, genetically identical. But they weren't there. Where are they all? And then another decade or two goes by and, and, and where's the teenagers? Where's the, where's the ones now that should have started growing 10 years ago and now are maybe two or three or four meters tall? Where are they? And so uh, generation after generation is kind of dropped out of the system that tells us this uh, browsing by both wildlife and domestic livestock um, is taking its toll, but it's doing so uh, sort of like killing the system from below through attrition of the young and not just die off of the old. So quite a number of years ago, there was a thought, and I think this might precede your time with the clone as well. There was a thought, 
well, we should fence some of this off and protect it. And there was an effort to build a fence in one of the areas of this giant forest, right? That's correct. And that came about because we had a couple of experiments that failed before that. In 1977 and I'm sorry, 1987 and 88, two small clear cuts uh, took place um, in the southwest corner of Pando. And uh, I say this very slowly. There is no forest there today still. So, you know, okay, we learned, right? And then the third try in 1992. One sec, if I can interrupt just for a sec. Um, what was the thought behind the clear cut? I, you know, I don't know exactly. I think they were taking uh, wood out of there. I think they were aware that there was this giant clone, but they weren't sure where the boundary was. Uh, and I think all of this was kind of coming to light by the federal land managers, of the U.S. Forest Service. Uh, and so did these clear cuts and nothing grew back at all. And that's, you know, if you put that in perspective, we know that this forest has been here for centuries and likely some millennia, but all of a sudden we come along and we tinker with it and there's no forest. Luckily, it's only a small kind of subsample of the larger Pando forest, but none at all. And so, so then, so the clear cut happens in the eighties and then sometime after that, the first fence is built, right? Yeah, 1992, they did a little bit larger clear cut. They were pretty sure that all those young sprouts that come up naturally after you cut this type of forest uh, were eaten. So they put up a fence and, and lo and behold, they had a, kind of a uniform age class uh, of aspen grow up behind the fence. So voila, we, we kind of have a pretty good idea what the problem is, but we don't know the level of it. We don't know what that means. And, and, and there's kind of a nuance there that that type of even-aged forest, all the trees being the same age because all the older trees died at the same time by the saw, is also pretty unnatural uh, for this, uh, this type of aspen forest. And that's the, that's the area of the forest that we were speaking of earlier, where there's this very uniform kind of middle-aged growth, but that fence not too long after the 1990s fell into disrepair the deer started getting in and and chomping away at the little ones again and so so there's some like middle age growth there but there wasn't a lot after that and, until that fence was repaired again right yeah that's correct and there's kind of two dynamics going on there one is the deer eating the young ones but also uh, some people have referred to this section of pando as the bamboo forest so imagine very dense uh, pole-sized or uh, a little bit bigger than your forearm-sized trees growing very densely. And so in, in, in any kind of a natural system, you wouldn't have a lot of really young ones coming up under that anyways. However, in the spaces between those denser forests that were previously in the fence, again, here we go again, nothing new is growing up. And that's very clearly out of whack with how this whole organism survived for, for a very long time. So then about, what, about a decade ago, um, almost now, they build another fence. And this is in a different area than, than that first fence was. And this is, this is the area that I was describing earlier where I saw this like immense joy in you on that day when you first saw the regrowth within what was this, at that point, very new fenced area. Do you... Do you still feel that way when you see regeneration in this in this forest? 
I, I'm encouraged by that, but we, now we have an, even another newer factor, which we haven't measured yet, but I'll come back around to. But that day, you and I, we were like two kindergartners walking into the classroom. We were so excited. It was It was fun. delightful. It, really it was, was delightful to see new growth after so many years of frustrated uh, growth uh, where every every single young stem was being browsed down to the ground. And so, wow. Yeah, it was. It was visceral joy that just popped out of us. And and you mentioned this newer factor. You said now we have a newer factor. Yeah. So and our big success story. And, and by the way, these are growing quite fast. These um, young Aspen stems can grow up to one meter or, or about three feet up to your about waist high for an adult in one year. Uh, that's kind of on the high end. But those ones that are, let's see, that was about 2013. So we're just about exactly at a decade. Um, are now some of them uh, uh, two, three meters tall. So, you know, t- between 10 and 20 feet tall. Wow, this is great. Well, two years ago, I walked in and at least... Well, 80, 90% of them or more were infected with a pretty aggressive stem canker. Yeah. So what does this mean? And maybe they'll thin themselves out. Maybe some will find a way to fight that off. Maybe not unlike a COVID-19 infection or something like that. I know that's not a, a great analogy, but some will survive and some won't, or, or maybe it'll be devastating. We don't know yet. And we're still doing some laboratory investigation. And, and those are only within that area where we had all that dense regrowth that we, that again, we thought was our great success. So the, these kinkers are very common in older stems on aspens. And if, if anybody's ever seen like a, a big thick aspen, it's almost it's, it would be very unusual not to see these sort of like big blotchy black uh, marks often toward the base of the stem um, that kind of grow and ooze over time. But they're not very common in the younger stems. Not in my experience and not to this high, high percentage of all the new growth, you know, most of them. But you're right. I, I often talk about aspen as being thin skinned, meaning the thin bark allows a lot of pathogens to easily infest it. And of course, uh, trees like people have ways of fending these things off, but some get through and some are successful at killing the trees, others are not. And so you get a mixed bag, but these look pretty severe on a large proportion of the new stems, like nearly all of them. This is like a really, really big, ever evolving puzzle that you're trying to put together. Right, it is. And so here's my take on this uh, Matthew, and this is often applied to big issues like climate change. If if we're rushing towards the cliff, we uh, as humans have the ability to turn the car or to slow down and and try to develop some resilience in these systems. Now uh, we can't control the pathogens very much, but we can control uh, the amount of browsing there, how we fence things or don't fence things, perhaps the amount of visitors. What are the things that are within our realm that we can come together as? Again, not easy solutions always, but working uh, to come together to solve these things. That's the resilience part of the equation, the part between where the vehicle is and the cliff. Uh, We certainly don't want to accelerate or do nothing, uh, keeping it at the same speed. Uh, And then we also have in the background, the, the big background is the, you know, the context of a changing climate, perhaps increasing uh, incidence of drought. And so uh, that will make, uh, that will 
potentially uh, weaken the uh, clone uh, additionally. So we need to build up some resilience. We need to come together as people and work through these, you know, complex situations, but but slow down and do this thoughtfully and always, always have somebody measuring and taking the pulse along the way, whether it's me or anybody. Well, you just mentioned drought, and I think this is an interesting thing. Those stems that we were just talking about, the ones within those fence, they didn't just come up within those fence. They also came up during a time of quite anomalous dryness across the American West, but particularly in Utah and central Utah. Um, And I don't know about specifically in the Fish Lake National Forest where Pando is, but all of this sort of coincides with that as well. So there's there's a bevy of suspects here, right? <laughs> yeah, you're helping me work up more hypotheses, but boy, I could sure use some help trying to to answer some of those questions. And really, in all honesty, there's no one person that can address all these um, these different avenues of exploration. But but cooperation and teamwork w- might get us there. But but to your point, um, drought, like other uh, things that affect aspen, um, can weaken. A, an aspen clone to the point where other things can um, infect it uh, more severely or more easily than they might have. However, I'm going to give us a, 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 um, a happy note here, or perhaps a hopeful note. Uh, all the doom and gloom that we hear about forest fires in the West is a scenario which presents a lot of opportunity for aspen. Sort of one man's ceiling is another man's floor when you live in an apartment building, right? So there's, there's and that's a given aspen- take. Yeah, aspen tend to thrive in the wake of fire, and they when when conifer stands come down in fire, um, it breeds room for the aspen. Which, and this was a study you worked on a few years ago, also aspen are this really amazing keystone species that gives a lot of habitat for a lot of other species. Right? That's right, and not only here. Uh, but Pando is a microcosm for aspen around the entire northern hemisphere, about six or seven species of aspen. Well, that that really gets me into this next question, which is, is saving Pando more about saving this one unusual thing, or is it about preserving a symbol? Is it about helping us understand aspen better in a way that will allow us to protect those forests in general? Maybe it's all of those things. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, not you're making me think like a parent, you, you want me to choose which child is favorite, but um, it's, it's a difficult choice uh, and it's not uh, so much a favorite, but, but all of the above. And I, I'm not trying to just brush off your question. It's, it is an important symbol. It also has a scientific root in the fact that we can control our experiment for um, genotype. We have a uniform force and we can learn something from that that we could apply to other places. So that's important. But I am really very wedded to the to the um, the keystone idea of aspen as an umbrella for many, many other species. Uh, and 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 that uh, branches out uh, across the world. So you know, I guess I bring this to my personal life too, but but the lessons to be learned from the connectivity in this system, not only between the roots of different stems, but the connectivity between species, as well as the diversity. So connectivity, we're all connected, and diversity, we need diversity for resilience, are pretty central to um, to understanding uh, Aspen and Pando's relationship to all Aspen. 
but also they could be perhaps morphed into people's personal philosophy as they are in mine. Mm. You mentioned earlier that you tend to be an optimist. You're also aware of what's happening in our world in regards to climate change. And of course, you know how complicated it is to try to save and salvage this large organism that you've spent so many years working on and looking at and and getting to know. So if I ask you to imagine what this forest looks like, let's say 50 years from now, what do you think? Is it healthy? Is it still unevenly suffering? Is it gone? What What's your guess? Yeah. And again, I'm going to lean on the optimistic side. And I know I'm using that imagination quite well at this point. But but I see people with disparate values uh, and disparate um, disciplinary expertise coming together for the good of something that's shared uh, for a treasure, for a um, for a classroom, you might say, a natural classroom. I see people coming together for the good of that. And I also see people um, who doing that because they they cannot envision the public coming to a 106 acre fenced off area and saying look inside look how neat that looks sort of like we created a a zoo out in our public wildlands but don't touch and and inside we have look at all those different trees that's pretty neat but we have no deer inside there and we have a lot of deer outside i don't see that as our future i see a future in which we, we, we try and we fail a little bit, but we strive for some balance. And, and I always tell people we're not trying to restore composition, meaning so many aspen trees, so many deer, so many um, geraniums, wild geraniums, so many wild roses, and so on, all down the list of all the species you can imagine. But we're trying to restore processes, a, natu- a, a natural functionality of a complex ecosystem. And there's bound to be a lot of fits and starts. However, if we're measuring along the way, we can alter course if we make some mistakes and hopefully they're small and we catch them early. However, the, the inverse of that is thinking we got it figured out, having that human arrogance, putting up a fence, or um, doing whatever we want to do and and make that one move and walk away thinking we're right and finding out later that we're not. Paul, you've been something of a Lorax for this tree for a really long time now. When do you think you'll feel like you've done everything you can for it? Like, is there a point at which you would feel okay stepping away and saying, "Ah, you know, he's going to be fine? I, I no, I don't think so. I think um, I will be there all the time. But I think one goal for me is to find others, more than one. That's plural. That will that will kind of take up that baton. Uh, and you know, I, I'm going to be there. I'm going to help them out. I hope they're ordering me around in the field to take more measurements. But I don't need to be at the helm, and I don't need my name to be out front at all. What I need, what I need most, and desire most, is for others to step in, and particularly people who have expertise that I don't have. It's easy to find people like you, but to find people who are not like you, who can really assist and really see the common goal. Um, I know these sound a little bit um, 
panacea, but but that's really the way I think. I think we can get there, and I think we have the expertise. It's it's the it's the getting people to come together, the will to bring it together, and so it doesn't have to be one person, but it's a partnership, and it's a handing off of knowledge, and it's a helping hand. I think those are the things that that are going to spell success. And of course, it's not just for me, but but for the future of this grove. But I can't say enough that I see this grove as a um, as just an example of where we need to be with aspen forests that that uh, go across North America, from central Mexico to the boreal forest, from the Atlantic to the Pacific, and then tag team across the next ocean to all the way across Eurasia. Those linkages, both of people and expertise, but also of ecosystems, you know, you can see my 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 sights are getting brightened and my horizons getting deeper. But I'm 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 loving the image of this, and and so that's the fantasy I'm going to stick with and hope to try to make that reality. But first things first, you got to find those young stems. <laughs> that's correct. <laughs> that's Paul Rogers. He's an ecologist and the director of the Western Aspen Alliance. And he's the author of a recent paper in the journal Conservation Science and Practice on the 100-acre aspen forest known as Pando. Paul, it is always a joy. I thank you so much for this invitation to speak with you today. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our program is supported by a generous grant from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot, and I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. Big ideas.